0: The world of construction is transforming before our eyes. How we design, plan, quantify, and build is changing day to day. But it's never been so easy to connect, share, bring people together. Our industry is reshaping. So how do we develop relationships? How do we overcome our fears? How do we generate business? And how do we ultimately become the best version of ourselves? This is Made to Measure. I'm McDonough. My guest today is. On this episode of Made to Measure, we are joined by Paul Regal. Paul has worked in the construction, infrastructure, and mining industries for over 20 years. Hailing from a QUT law degree, Paul graduated and worked for some time as a commercial lawyer. After finding the value of reviewing commercial contracts and offering legal strategy and advice, he found himself in the construction and resources industries. Paul progressed rapidly in his career and has delivered commercial strategy and direction to a number of global organizations, including Lang O'Rourke, where he was commercial director, Asenko, where he was senior manager of commercial and risk, Adani, where he was head of commercial, Rio Tinto, WSP, and Lendlease, and that's just naming a few. This is an episode packed full of information, and Paul was extremely gracious with his time. I really hope you enjoy it. This is Made the Measure. I'm McDonaghy and my guest today is Paul Regal. How's it going Paul? Very well and you? Yeah I'm awesome mate, awesome. So Paul do you mind giving the people at home a little introduction to yourself and what it is that you do?
1: So I'm the Executive Director of Stratagility which is a commercial and project advisory consultancy and across infrastructure, energy and resources, and renewables.
0: Excellent. And are you focused primarily on the Australian market?
1: Currently, most of the work is in Australia. However, in the past, I have operated internationally, particularly in sort of Africa, Middle East and South and North America.
0: Fantastic. So I want to, I'm pretty keen to, to, to go back to your, your early days. So I believe that you, you, you originally studied law, is that correct? I
1: did. For my sins, I was a lawyer um, yeah. many years ago. What I say to people, and I still mentor sort of law students at QUT, what a law degree teaches you is really problem solving.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you're studying problems uh, in, in law, how does that resonate within the sort of construction, infrastructure, resources industries?
1: Whether it's a sort of a capital or CapEx or OpEx project, all projects have issues. You can plan the best you possibly can, but you're always going to run into projects in, or issues in a project environment. So, that ability to think and look at problems from different angles or through different lenses allows you to generate different solutions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, all the solutions you come up with may not work, but at least then you've got a range of solutions that the organization. Can look at in trying to deal with those problems.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, when you were studying law, did, did you ever think that you would get into the sort of broader built environment, construction resources industries?
1: Uh, look, I think it was always in the back of my mind simply because I probably don't have the ego to be a partner in a law firm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, I, think I was always of the view that my private legal practice career was probably not going to be. A very long career now whether that meant i would have ended up in sort of an in-house legal role Mm -hmm. that was probably where i was thinking but things change over time so and i think richard branson said it if you get offered an opportunity if you don't think you've got the skills don't necessarily discount the opportunity Mm -hmm. look at it work in the role Mm -hmm. or the opportunity and You've probably got the skill set to get you to learn the skills while you're doing that role, and that's how you learn.
0: So, when you studied, um, was it was commercial law that you focused on, or was it just a broader legal? I think
1: probably commercial law is the best way to describe it. Yeah,
0: yes. excellent. And when when you when you graduated, then you know what, what was your what was your first job?
1: So I was what was called an articled clerk. Um, oh, <laughs> um,
0: it sounds fancy.
1: Oh, it does. I was the, and it wasn't an employment agreement. It was actually a, um, it's called Articles of Indenture. Oh, yeah. Really very sort of old English approach. So I had a master. who was actually my employer and I was his servant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very different. That's no longer the case in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, You become a trainee solicitor now and you Mm -hmm. go off and do a legal practice course which is probably a lot better than the way it used to be, although the reality was that was the way I did it. So, yes, you got thrown in the deep end often, which Mm
2: -hmm.
1: can be good and can be bad. I don't mind people getting thrown in the deep end as long as there's a support structure around them. Yeah. Sometimes you are going to feel out of your depth when you're doing things in your career. Mm -hmm. It's just a reality. So sometimes having being exposed to that early on gives you that resilience and those coping mechanisms to get through those difficult times.
0: It's quite interesting because a lot of, you know, senior executives or board members or directors that I, I deal with are often quite thankful for those, you know, very early jobs that they had throughout their career. You know, even that they weren't the most glamorous or you, you were called a servant or, or, or something along those lines, it, it, it teaches so much.
1: You learn more through adversity than through good times. Mm. Um, and you really learn about yourself as well and how you cope with pressure.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's
1: always going to be pressure in your career. And whether that's the pressure of managing your career with your your sort of home life, mm-hmm. it's about building that resilience. Because the one constant and whether whether it's COVID or any other sort of natural disaster or the GFC going back a number of years, the one constant going forward is change. You're Mm -hmm. always going to have change, and the rate of change is rapidly increasing, and I've seen that. So when I started in my career, there were no iPhones. Computers were sort of very large boxes. Laptops if they existed, were horrendously expensive and they weighed like six, seven kilos but they weren't <laughs> really a laptop. Yeah. Um, the mobile phones were the old Motorola brick. Yeah. You could use on a building site to hammer nails in because they were... So just that rapid level of change over the course of my career alone, if you're resistant to change, you're just going to get steamrolled.
0: Yeah. And it's quite it's quite interesting because when you think of those starting their career now, what it's going to be like in 20, 30, 40 years time, you know, it's the change is, is just going to get faster and faster. There was never an opportunity for people to to learn through podcasts, you know, five, six, seven years ago. So it's you know I'm, I'm quite I'm quite thankful for all the change, and I'm in some ways quite thankful for going through this type of you know this adversity as well because it makes you better at what you do. It makes you more thankful and grateful for what you have and hopefully it makes us better in the long term.
1: Well, look, I think it will. And from an employment perspective, I think what it, particularly the whole working from home, what it has demonstrated is that it's debunked that myth that people can't be productive working from home. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of cases, people are actually more productive working from home and are probably working longer hours than they did previously because... Well, one of the major things they don't have to do is commute. Yep. And for a lot of people, that commute time is anywhere between sort of 30 minutes and, depending on where you are, an hour and a half or two hours yep. each way. Um, Brisbane's not as bad, although I work with people who, in previous roles, who lived on the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. So they commute from the Sunshine Coast every day.
0: Do you think that it will open up opportunity for remote workers overseas?
1: Look, I think it will in the sense that as long as you can manage the sort of deliverables that are required Mm -hmm. and the necessity sometimes to have Zoom calls or Microsoft Teams meetings, you can make it work. One of the roles I had, I was based in Australia, but I spent a lot of my time working overseas. And so when I was back in Australia, I used to deal with sort of particularly North America early in the morning, then Australia, and then you'd start into the Asian time zones, then Africa, Middle East, and then you'd flip to Europe and once again back to the US and North America at night. So you actually get used to managing the time zone. Mm -hmm. And if that means that from sort of 6pm to 9 or 6pm to 8pm you lock out as no meetings and family time, and then you go back online after eight thirty or nine o'clock for one or two meetings. There are ways to manage that, so I think that flexibility of approach is what, particularly COVID, has shown. If you're flexible with your approach, you can pretty well get anything done.
0: Yeah, well, it's 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 it, I think it all comes down to those in ha- the hiring positions to really look at this, you know, last six months and, and really you know, innovate the change moving forward, you know, because it's for in a talent acquisition perspective, there's certain types of candidates within construction or resources or mining that are exceptionally hard to find. And there might be a candidate in a different state of Australia who meets all the criteria, but wants to work remotely. And a lot of, a lot of the cases up until now, there hasn't been an, a level of interest because, there's a feeling that they're not getting embedded into the team, embedded into the culture there for the the Friday Arvo beers and uh, and barbecue, you know. But I'm hoping that it does create some change in, on that side because it's going to help companies out in the long term.
1: Well, absolutely, it's a bit more difficult in sort of your trade labor kind of roles or your site based roles. But even if you look at those, from particularly if you look at a white collar. Perspective, you can maybe do two or three days on site a week mm-hmm. as opposed to a full five day or things like that, and then work the others from home. Now, yeah. if you're out of state, that's a little bit different, but you might do a three in one roster where you do three weeks at home, one week on site, or a two and an equal time two and two roster. Once again, it's about that flexibility.
0: Yeah, well, my wife has just recently got a new job and. She was speaking to the HR person yesterday, and one of the questions they asked was, do, "Do you know whether you're going to be working from home or working in the office?" You know, and I, and I said to her like, "That that just doesn't that never happened six months ago. That never happened ever." You know, usually you would have to go to the, the director or the board or whoever it might be with your tail between your legs and ask, you know, "Can I can I leave at four Or you know, "Can I take a Friday off because I, I, I need it for a certain reason?" But I'm hoping it does create that change moving forward because it will help the industry out in so many ways.
1: Look, it will, and particularly from a diversity inclusion perspective, particularly construction, construction lags in terms of the number of female participants in the industry.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: There's probably a whole myriad of reasons for that. But if you look at it from the perspective of allowing more flexibility in terms of working arrangements and locations. Mm-hmm. That's going to help significantly in re-engaging or engaging with the female workforce, which is critical for the industry going forward.
0: Uh, well, absolutely. And, and I think in, 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 in other ways as well, you know, if there's an opportunity for, say, graduates who, who may you know, come from overseas, they might be from... You know India Africa Malaysia and they're studying in Australia or New Zealand and, and they, they, they graduate you know is there an opportunity for them to do some part-time remote work for some of these companies to get some experience you know they, they, it doesn't have to be earning a fortune but can they do some, some cost planning or estimating online just to get that experience on their CV to start developing their career
1: look well, absolutely Particularly now with technology, yes, there is that opportunity. Even if, if, if you look from an engineering perspective, you can do that mm-hmm. because you can, they can do drafting in their time zone and then share the results online or do it in a federated BIM model or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then depending on the organisation, if it's a global organisation, well, maybe once a week they go into the local office that's nearest to them of that organisation, Mm -hmm. just to touch base with people and get connected. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. So I think the dynamic of the workplace in terms of how it's set up is going to change. You're going to see a lot more meeting rooms as opposed to offices and Mm -hmm. people will come in maybe one or two days a week and have a series of meetings and then work from home the rest of the time.
0: I know, well, and that's it. And especially in a lot of the major centres as well where house prices are so expensive, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if you were able to uh, finish work on a Friday and hit the surf and have a reasonably affordable house and, and still enjoy your work and be as productive?
1: Absolutely. The key for that, but is your transport infrastructure mm-hmm. and the transport corridors. Yep. Um, and I've, I've said to my wife, if, if there was sort of fast rail from Brisbane to the Sunshine Coast, I would happily live on the Sunshine Coast yeah. and just come to Brisbane when I need to. The problem at the moment is we don't have that transport infrastructure there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But once that becomes available, then suddenly all the regional areas become more viable. Mm-hmm. So Toowoomba, Ipswich, etc. in Queensland, and then you look at that in New South Wales. You've got Dubbo, Wagga, Newcastle, the Illawarra, Wollongong, and Victoria. You've got Mildura, etc., etc.,
2: And mm-hmm.
1: even WA, you've got Fremantle and even further south, the Geraldton, et cetera. So suddenly the pool of talent increases mm-hmm. because what people who are living on the Sunshine Coast, they don- may not necessarily, order in Toowoomba, may not necessarily want to relocate to Brisbane for a while. Yep. But if they can work from home and come in when they need to with a transport corridor that supports that, happy days
2: mm-hmm.
0: so what i'm keen to talk about is, is is how your your studies within law has benefited your career within construction resources mining so you, you obviously started off in commercial law what, what was your first job within the sort of the construction
1: sector so i worked for Rio Tinto um, oh, yeah. for a number of years across uh, their operational and capital procurement Mm -hmm. And so there were a number of sort of major projects that I was involved with um, at Rio at the time. The law degree has basically allowed me to look at contracts, commercial situations, apply that problem solving, but also the knowledge of the law to create commercial solutions Mm -hmm. in that project environment. Then that as the base, then coupled with the experience of on the job as... Allowed me to broaden my skill set into so looking at PL responsibility, et cetera, going forward, looking at cost management, looking at estimating and planning and scheduling. So it's a combination of, yes, I have the base degree, but then it's a lot of on the job experience over the years that has broadened that experience.
0: Obviously, studying that, that degree, did you ever envisage yourself being, you know, you've had some pretty, pretty big job titles, you know, say commercial director, Lang O'Rourke, commercial operations leader for GE, head of commercial for Adani. Did you envisage being in those positions? Uh,
1: probably not. No. no.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I think it's the willingness, once again, to sort of sometimes take on things that you don't think – you hadn't thought about mm-hmm. previously. And that doesn't matter whether you come whether you come from a legal background or a quantity surveying background or even an engineering background. If you think you've got a passion for an area or you like something about that area, go and talk to people in the area
2: mm-hmm.
1: because you'll find that most senior people, if you ask them for help, they're actually really willing to help you. Mm-hmm. Most of the time they don't get asked to help. Mm. And the worst case is they say they may not be able to help you now, but they'll help you in a few weeks' time or something like that. So always be willing to ask questions. Yeah. Because that's how you learn. Oh. And it's also really good, particularly in, the com- or in a commercial environment, asking questions is how you actually get to know things about mm-hmm. the issues and what's gone wrong or what could go wrong. because. There's no way you can know everything about the situation.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And
1: if people tell you they know everything about the situation, be very, very wary yeah. because you can't.
3: Yeah.
1: I don't have a technical engineering background, so I'll, I, I will ask a lot of technical engineering questions simply because I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going around saying I know that because I don't. And it's then bringing all those... Ideas and knowledge together, and crafting the solution—that
0: mm-hmm. is the key. You've worked, as as you mentioned earlier, you know, in c- countries internationally. Obviously, Australia. I've seen Mozambique and, and Sierra Leone. How did you get involved in that type of work? For you know, those maybe who, are, who are, obviously, it's very difficult because of COVID. But in in more normal times. Uh, is, is there anything that you would recommend that people do to get involved in, in overseas work?
1: One, it's about the organization you work for. They need to have that sort of global footprint. And that's quite easy in sort of the oil and gas and particularly resources industries, because
2: mm-hmm.
1: whether it's on the client asset owner side or whether it's on a sort of project management consultancy or engineering firm, they have those global footprints. And then it's, Basically being willing to look at those opportunities. And sometimes that means that you may have to go outside of your comfort zone and go and work in a location that's that you wouldn't have th- thought about working in.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think every lots of Australians sort of do the go to the UK and work in London for a time. Don't necessarily go to London. Maybe mm-hmm. go and work in Singapore or Malaysia or go and work in the Middle East, whether mm-hmm. it's in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or even um, Muscat in Oman or somewhere like that. Look at something different. Or then South America, go work in Chile, in Santiago or Lima in Peru or even Brazil, whether it's Sao Paulo. Look at things a bit differently. Or even look at continental Europe. Um, yeah. There's lots of opportunities in the Scandinavian countries, particularly in the oil and gas sector. Mm-hmm. Um, And then if you look at renewables, even more opportunities in sort of continental Europe. And Australians always, we've got a good reputation internationally in terms of our work ethic. We're seen as quite hard workers and we're also seen as not being overly precious about our view of what the solution should be. Mm -hmm. We're willing to take on other people's views and come up with a, a consensus solution, which some other nationalities don't necessarily have this that same that same view, or at least the perception is they don't have that same
0: affability. Yeah, yeah well the Irish we we get hard working, but might turn up the work every now and again with bad hangover, you know. So well I'll take that though. I'll take it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're worse
0: things. They're absolutely worse things. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what, what were the main sort of learnings for you then working internationally? Patience,
1: being patient
0: with people um, because
1: there's language barriers, there's cultural barriers and being empathetic uh, because people in those or in different locations have very, very different backgrounds, very, very different historical backgrounds. So that then influences the way they work. I remember a Chilean once saying to me that, particularly in Chile and indeed in a lot of South America, that you'll find that a lot of people don't show what you would consider in the Western world to be a lot of initiative. And the reason for that is because particularly in years past, if you showed that you were thinking outside the box or showing initiative, that you could quite easily offend the Political powers that be, and you got disappeared. So mm. it's having that that cultural sensitivity
2: uh,
1: about the way you work and the way you engage with people.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the other classic one is, and it was told to me by someone who uh, was a Chinese person I know, uh, they always find it amusing, and so do I, when you see people like England or Australians or Americans or trying to speak to people who have uh, in another country they keep raising their voice to try and get understood Well, just because they they don't understand what you're saying if you shout it at them it doesn't mean they're going to understand it any better it just means you're being louder Um, so take the time slow down your speech be more I suppose, thoughtful in the way you talk and engage.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree. I, I, unfortunately, I have to do that in Australia because of my accent. So I have to slow down and talk because of my apparently strong Irish accent. But I've had to do that in New Zealand as well. So maybe it's a, maybe it's a personal thing.
1: <laughs> oh, no, look, I've seen um, one of the things that really irritates me on, when I watch TV is where they subtitle people with accents. Yeah, And it's particularly prevalent in the US. And I've been in the US and people think I've got an English accent, so. It's strange. Yeah, (laughs) it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, Accents can be difficult, but then again, yours is not an issue at all. Uh, Scottish can be quite, particularly the further north in Scotland, that can be quite hard.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I work with a Scottish guy. And um, yeah, it's when he's playing football, it's hard to understand what he's saying. But it's quite funny when I brought my, my wife home to my family in Ireland, <laughs> I introduced my wife to my, my dad, and my dad, were having a cup of tea, and it was just me and him. And he pulls me to the side, and he was like, She's got quite a thick Kiwi accent, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> and she, she's, used to, she's used to saying that to me. So um, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's quite funny from different sides of the world and different opinions oh, and what is, you're used to.
1: You talk to people from Victoria and they'll say that Queenslanders have quite a distinct accent and the further north in Queensland yeah. you go, it's an even stronger accent. So, and that's the beauty of people, of humanity. Yep. That people are all different, and it's that's what's really in, and that's what I found great about working internationally. You're exposed to all those different cultures and different mm-hmm. people, and that's really exciting and interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I agree 100%. So, another thing I wanted to, to ask Paul is obviously, you've had quite a, a number of sort of high ranking positions, as it will, and, and I know. You know, from working in in recruitment, often those types of positions come through your network as opposed to, you know, just applying for jobs online. Would would you have any knowledge or can you shed any light on how to build a network within the markets that you've worked?
1: Start really simply with your work colleagues. Start building that network. And then if you're doing work, if you've got a colleague from... If you're on the contractor side and they're on the client side, build those networks, then get them, build the network with your sort of direct colleague,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: then get them to help you to build the network within their organisation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a business development perspective, they kind of, sometimes it's called a zipper strategy
2: mm-hmm. where
1: you match people in, in like roles across the client and the contractor organisation right from the graduate all the way up to the CEO. Mm -hmm. And that it's a similar approach with building a network. You start with your closest and then you just build out from there and look for mentors as well. And that doesn't matter whether you're just starting out or even when you get quite experienced and senior. You always should have network or mentors that you go to and ask questions and seek advice from because they've got different experience. Therefore, they've got a different view, so their advice is going to be valuable because they bring that different experience to the issue that you're dealing with.
0: How do you seek a mentor, or does a mentor find you, or do you find them? You know, is it how does that happen? Um,
1: look, it can be both. A lot of the sort of professional development organisations are very good, like engineers. Australia has a mentoring program in the commercial and contract management space, IACCM, which is the International Association of Contract and Commercial Management. Hence why mm-hmm. everyone calls it IACCM.
0: Yeah, it's Mofun. M- m-
1: it is. That's a global sort of organisation for contract and commercial management. Mm-hmm. It's buy side and sell side and they have a mentoring program. Oh, yeah. The universities have mentoring program where they match sort of final year students with people who are working in the industry mm-hmm. and then ask, even in leveraging off the back of that,
2: then ask that mentor how to help
1: broaden your network. Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably the, the key strategies.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I've worked with mentors before and the value they've given me has been unbelievable you know and sometimes you you have a mentor that you don't realize is a mentor until maybe five years after or or whatever it might be and then you you see you're picking up your phone and you're reaching out to them for advice and it might not be uh you know in brackets you know formalized agreement but it's it's definitely a mentorship absolutely so you, you obviously you you've you've developed throughout your career and over the last while, you've 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 had your own consultancy. What what was the the main motivators for you starting your own consultancy, Paul?
1: Uh, it sort of came about with the downturn. I was working in the mining industry at the time, and it was just it was the GFC, so mm-hmm. things were really starting to slow down, and the the writing was to a certain extent on the wall that things were going to get worse, um, mm-hmm. and then. I got approached about some sort of contract work and that sort of was the genesis of it since then it's been working or going through the network or people approaching me to do other discrete pieces of work which has so essentially built that consultancy pipeline along mm-hmm. the way there are benefits and advantages and disadvantages of being not being a full-time employee but then there's advantages disadvantages of being a full-time employee, it really is a personal choice at the end of the day. Yeah. In the past, you would say that if you're, an F, if you're an employee, you've got more job security. I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore. Most consulting engagements, they can turn you off sort of with 7, 14 kind of days notice. For most employment agreements, it's 28 days, unless it's a more senior role. Mm-hmm. And then it might be three or six months. But there's really, I suppose, that notion of having a job for life is gone.
2: Yeah.
1: And whilst I don't necessarily agree that the gig economy is, is a good path because that lack of social welfare net behind below a gig economy is, can be particularly problematic mm-hmm. when you have things like a pandemic. Yep. Probably Even if you are in a full-time role, think about having a side hustle, and even if it's simply something you're really interested in, and it might not be in the same sort of field as what you're actually working in, but if it's something you're passionate about, do it on the side, and you may end up finding that because you start doing that, that then that become you actually build a career out of that, yeah, and a pathway out of that. So, and I think. That's probably a lot easier for new entrants or for younger generations. I'm a yeah. Gen X. Um, yeah. it's probably a lot easier for millennials and Gen Ys than for Gen Xs to start to have that thought, that approach. And I think it's going to be more and more common going forward.
0: Yeah, no, to- I agree. And, and also uh, on the flip side of that, I find that when you're representing the candidate who, who have interests in other things outside of their work, sometimes are just a little bit more favored in, in some ways, you know, because you, you have interest, you have a personality, you know, you're the type of person who's willing to dedicate themselves to, to something outside of their work. You know, you're obviously showing different skill sets and attru- attributes that you could possibly bring into your work. If it's photography, it could be, could be sports or whatever it might be. It's just an, it's quite an attractive trait, to have interests?
1: Well, it is. And if I I think of it from a hiring manager's perspective, the first thing it demonstrates is you've got good time management skills Mm -hmm. and it also shows that you're dedicated. They're two pretty important skills in any employee. So from that sense, yeah, yeah, absolutely it's attractive and it makes you a more rounded individual,
0: which is always good. What one thing I also wanted to ask, Paul, is so you've worked in multiple different verticals, so construction, infrastructure, mining, energy. Working in that commercial management space, you know, that that sort of senior commercial level roles, is is there much differences between each sector?
1: The terminology, of course, is different. Mm -hmm. Um, The approach is, to a certain extent, the same. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, Infrastructure, of course, tends to be a lot more public sector focused, particularly sort of transport, or if if you think about sort of hospital, that's very much public sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there are large infrastructure projects in, particularly mining, because you've got the whole mine, um, mine infrastructure area with the roads and the pit and mm-hmm. the reclaimers and stackers and conveyors, etc difference in approach to risk is quite different across the different industries.
0: What, 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 what industry would want to minimise risk the most?
2: Public sector, unfortunately.
0: Hmm. And that's obviously why things take a lot longer?
1: It is. And I think the other issue you have with public sector is you always have a political overlay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's much more prevalent in that public sector infrastructure space than, yes, there's a political overlay in a mining or an oil and gas project, but it's nowhere near as overt simply because with a public sector project, there'll be a minister who's responsible for it and that minister needs to be Mm. re-elected. And there'll be a shadow minister who will, nine times out of ten, be wanting to criticise the incumbent minister for delays or issues. And they're also also thinking in the the election time cycle mindset of whether that's three years or four years for Australia Mm -hmm. or in the UK scenario it's five years. And that can be very difficult in terms of getting the project off the ground. Mm. And then it's always a lot easier for the media to get involved in a public sector project than for a private sector project. Yeah. Activist groups and the media in general are getting far more engaged mm. in major projects than
0: they have in the past. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I always thought it may have been mining, you know, because of the. There's so much. There's obviously, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people protesting against mining, and it's, it's one of those sort of industries which can, can stir up the. Uh, you know the woke culture, and um, obviously with climate change being so prevalent at the moment, but it makes a lot of sense that it's trans, you know, infrastructure projects,
1: particularly in terms of thermal coal. Yes, mm. that it's an issue. But if I look at iron ore or copper, gold, lithium, the other thing that I think people sometimes forget is, without the extractive resources industry, modern life would not exist.
3: Yeah,
1: Are we Glasses, they're plastic. Yeah, that's a byproduct of the mining industry and the petrochemical industry. Yeah, we use computers which have copper in them, they have elements of gold, they have other base metals in them, they have plastic. It just you go to work and you go on a bus or a train or in a, an Uber or a taxi, it, it's just so prevalent. That, mm-hmm. And a lot of those organizations are doing a, a lot in, in, towards their environmental and social and governance requirements. Mm-hmm. Yes, they stumble and fall. Rio Tinto's most recent example in WA. Mm-hmm. But they tend to be the exception rather than the rule. Yep. And what often isn't talked about, particularly from an oil and gas and a resources industry perspective. Is how well they've engaged with First Nations people Mm -hmm. um, to bring economic prosperity, and we've done a lot of very good work in Australia. But there's a lot of really good work that's been done internationally, Mm -hmm. and so it's about always continuous improvement in that space.
0: Mm -hmm. I think I think mining as a as an industry is is quite fascinating. Really, you know, you don't really, as you said, modern life wouldn't be here. You know, if you didn't have Bridges and you know, as you said, the copper in your iPhone. You know, it's easy to point the finger, but when you actually look at it and go, well, you know, you wouldn't have the bed springs in, 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 in your bed if if it wasn't for some of these you know large mine sites. Then you know, modern life wouldn't wouldn't ever be the same. But one last question, Paul. So, would you have? A, is there any advice that you'd have for for any of those people who? or maybe sort of graduating this year or, you know, unfortunately been made redundant. It's obviously a really challenging year for people. Any advice that you, you'd give them? Use
1: LinkedIn to try and build your network and mm-hmm. connections as much as possible. It's a brilliant pr- platform from that perspective. Yep. Try and have as many conversations with prospective organisations that you would like to work for yep. and people within those organisations. Because even if they don't have a role right now, good managers are always keeping an eye on talent, the talent pool out there. Absolutely. And look, when I was at Rio, I transitioned five teams in three years mm-hmm. because they kept getting poached by Yeah. either different parts of the business or competitors. Yeah. So it's just a reality. Good managers will always be looking to keep their talent pool. so And it is going to be frustrating over the next few months, I think. The back end of this year is going to be quite probably a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. But there is hope at the end of the tunnel. We had the Spanish flu pandemic 100 years ago. We came out of that. We're in a much better shape globally now than we were then in terms of recovery. Mm-hmm. That came off the back of the First World War. So you already had disrupted global economies and disrupted supply chains. We don't have that this time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think the the quote I often go to is Monty Python saying, always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> yeah. Because it can be and particularly with the media, the coverage can be very depressing and daunting. Mm. Just Focus on the positives because things will get better. Mm
2: -hmm. There's
1: one thing history has shown us. Humans are amazingly ingenious and innovative beings. Mm -hmm. Things will get better. And hopefully we'll come out of it a lot stronger than we were previously. What I would like to see is a refocus in Australia on sort of advanced manufacturing because we have the technical skill set to do it here.
0: Yeah, that's been been something that... You know, three four months ago, when no one could buy face masks, and you've seen a lot of these little country towns are opening up their manufacturing facilities again, and you've seen some of the ex-veterans starting to work in the factories, and you're like, "This is amazing!" Like, look, look, look at what actually happened. If we aren't just, you know, outsourcing all of our manufacturing or whatever it might be, you know, it could be so beneficial for the local people.
1: Oh, absolutely, and that's where government. Plays a critical role. So Australia spends about one point five percent of GDP on R and D. Now, if you compare that to really what we call innovative countries, so South Korea, Japan, Israel, they spend between four and five percent mm. of GDP on R and D. When I was doing work for GE, they spent nine billion US a year on R and D.
0: Yeah, it's incredible.
1: Because if you manufacture, or if you have a product line, you have to keep researching and developing, whether it's add-ons to that product or new products, because the market changes, the global environment changes, your customers change. Mm. The thing, it all comes back to a constant change. So mm-hmm. you have to keep investing.
0: Absolutely, and, and one, one last question. What, what are you looking forward to? Obviously, you kind of hinted on that, but a- 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 anything else? I think
1: this, or well COVID has given the construction industry particularly an opportunity to reset. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of talk in coming prior to sort of 2020 about cost blowouts and contractors losing money in the industry and very adversarial contracting models. I think this... Pandemic gives us the opportunity to almost reset the industry and look at more collaborative types of engagements um, where the outcome's focused as opposed to cost and risk focused. Mm -hmm. Look at better risk-sharing methodologies Mm -hmm. across asset owners and contractors. And then look at different delivery models as well. The Sydney Olympics was a great example of a different delivery model so basically they opened that up and required lots of lower tier contractors get work on that delivery of the olympics and that was because they said that up front
2: mm-hmm. and
1: said we have to do it this way we can do that in the industry we just need to take those positive steps mm-hmm. at the contractor level at government and work together that then benefits everyone because ultimately the tier one contractors are becoming fewer and fo- further apart in Australia and a lot of the work is being, they subcontract a lot of the work anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's your lower tier contractors that end up doing that work. So, And they then go and spend in their local areas, which then drives the economy further and further mm-hmm. forward. Small business is really the engine room of the Australian economy.
0: I think that's a perfect place to end, Paul. If there's anyone out there that's listening to the podcast and maybe wants to reach out to you for advice or just to get in touch, what's the best way? Is it LinkedIn or is it email? Or
1: LinkedIn is the best way to get to me. I've got my profile on LinkedIn. It's got my contact details on there. Send me a message on LinkedIn and um, reach out and connect. And happy to talk to you.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this today. And I uh, hope to catch up with you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers, Paul. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Made to Measure. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. This is the only podcast in the world that focuses on the niche area of construction costing. Therefore, as an independent podcast, your support is invaluable. Please like, share, screenshot, give a review, or just tell your friends and colleagues about the show. More people that know about the podcast, the better the guests that we can bring to you, the better the content you will consume. Thank you for joining me. I'm McDonaghy, and this was made to measure.